And I am going back this week, we are going back to a study of the book of Galatians. You know that we um, took off from Galatians back in March. And this week we return to it. And if you'll open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians, you'll see where it was that we departed. We were in Galatians chapter 4. And we spent a few weeks studying the truth of Scripture God has revealed to us that when we come to faith in Christ, that we're given the tremendous privilege of knowing God no longer simply in the sort of pathetic, narrow, and um, limited way that the world knows him, the world that in the time of the Greek philosophers referred to him as their father only because from a father you have your origin. The father is the one who uh, impregnates the mother and out of that comes origin. And so uh, any biological child can call their father father in that limited way but rather that as believers in Jesus Christ, we can come to the living God and we see in verse 6, because you are sons, God has adopted us. God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then it says in verse 7, Therefore you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so we see this language of Scripture. It seems to us it's very old and and passe. It's something that uh, no longer applies because it had to do with the patriarchal culture. (laughs) And yet we see (coughs) that Scripture indicates that this is not a a function of the patriarchy of ancient culture, but rather this is a special gift from God to those who place their faith in His Son, that He makes our hearts able by His Holy Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba being a very tender and endearing term for a father. It's a term that would be used by a son or a daughter who loves their father. Now, we see in Galatians 6 this statement, sons, because God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As we place our faith in God's Son, we become sons with Him, and we speak to His Father as Jesus spoke to His who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father. Now, as we keep going, though, in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, and pick up with verse 8, we see that verse 8 begins with the word, However. And so here you have wealth and privilege that is greater than anything that could ever be conceived. I wish this helped, sweetie pie. Excuse me a second. (coughs) Wealth and privilege is greater than anything that's ever been in Fort Knox, anything that's ever been in the banks of Wall Street or the stock markets. It's a wealth and privilege of intimacy with God, of being known by God and knowing God. But right after... God speaks to us about this through his Apostle Paul. We see this word, however, and I would like to read verses 8 through 11 of Galatians chapter 4, which we will begin studying this week and complete at future weeks. Galatians 4, verses 8 to 11. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. However, at that time, 
When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we come to you as little birds with their mouths open, sitting in the nest, waiting for their parents to feed them. We are humble and our mouths are open. And we pray, Father, that you will give us the truth of Scripture, that we will not be proud and unteachable, but that we will see here in these words both warnings and encouragements from you yourself and that we will be made wise to be saved eternally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who haven't been here during our study of the book of Galatians, and maybe some of you don't know the theme of the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians has to do with a conflict in a church. And any of you who have ever uh, been a part of a church know that churches do have conflict. And the conflict in this particular church is not unlike the conflict that many of us have experienced in other churches. It's the conflict between the old-timers and the Johnny-come-latelys, the new-timers. Um, yesterday, uh, I was talking to a, a man who has served as a pastor in the United Methodist Church, and he was describing for me the, uh, the occasion when he sort of got driven to distraction by his church. He was the pastor of a smaller uh, church in which uh, there were many generations going back a long, long time, and he and the trustees of the church, there was a man that came to that church who had to sit out in the foyer until the service began because he was in a wheelchair and there was no place in the sanctuary for his wheelchair. So he'd sit out in the sanctuary until the service began and then when the service began, he could come in because he would be blocking the center aisle and everybody had to be in already. And so the trustees and the pastor talked and thought it through very carefully and decided that they would uh, explain to the congregation that one of the pews needed to be removed so that there would be a place for this man to have his home in his wheelchair and that he wouldn't stick out and he wouldn't be a second-class citizen. And so they thought it was a reasonable thing, and the day came and they did it. And then, of course, they paid the price. Because, as it turned out, that particular pew was the pew that certain women had sat in for many, many years. And as they talked to these women, what they found out was that that pew was the specific pew that their ancestors sat in year after year after year. And so making way for this man in a wheelchair was desecrating the memory of their ancestors. They could no longer sit in the pew, as they explained it, and commune with their ancestors. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for that. I think all of us should have sympathy for it because... The truth is, there are certain things that do remind us of the godly people through whom we have come to faith. And often they are very physical things. We laugh at people that fight when their parents die and think they're so greedy. But a lot of times, the reason they're fighting is not primarily because of greed, but it's because every individual thing represents their sentimental connection and relationship. And if they have any relational problems with their mom and dad that haven't been worked out prior to death, 
Those tangible items are the ways that we work out all the jealousies and prides and, you know, well, I didn't get enough of Mama when, I, when she was alive and I was a baby and by gum, I'm going to take it when she dies, you know. And you were the firstborn, you were the son, I'm going to get the dining room table, right? And so things are important to us. Well, what was important in the church of Galatia? It was a fight between the new-timers and the old-timers. And the old-timers, what was important to them was their Jewishness. After all, God had revealed himself to the Jews. God had given the Ten Commandments to the Jews. And here were these Johnny-come-lately Gentiles who until then, they'd never been allowed to eat with them, let alone worship with them. And they come, you know, jauntily into the church, never having, you know, had the law, never having had all the ceremonial distinctions, never having had to wash their hands and to observe the diet laws and all, and they come flouncing into church and they think that they can just be saved. You know? And the Jews are like, uh-uh. You're not just going to come in here and like forget the generations of us faithful people, the people who God gave the law to. You're going to pay your dues. And you know what your dues are? Your dues are circumcision. Well, that's a pretty heavy due to pay to become a Christian if you're a Gentile as an adult, right, men? And so this church is divided. It wasn't the only time the church was divided over circumcision. The Jews are saying, look, you're going to be circumcised. Yes, you can be a Christian, but you need to be a Jewish Christian. Now, if that were a division in this church today, and if I were to say to you, no, they must not have to be circumcised, you would probably be angry at me, but you'd say, all right, let's be open-minded. You know, let's go ahead and let them in without paying their dues. After all, all of us are sinners saved by grace. But what if I went on and harangued you? What if I took David Canfield, our clerk, and publicly opposed him and pointed out with whom he was sitting during church potlucks? How come it was that it used to be, before we got so many Jews in this congregation, that you would eat with Gentiles, but now that we've got all these Jews in the congregation, how come, David, now all of a sudden you're just sitting with the Jews, you know? The old-timers, you know? The people that are rich spiritually, you know? What if I did that, exposed him in front of you? Hey, did you notice David Canfield? He's not sitting with the Gentiles anymore. He's sitting with the Jews. Did you notice that? Okay, and then what if I went on beyond that and I began to talk about David Canfield maybe being apostate. Maybe David has left Jesus Christ behind. Maybe those of you who are following David and not associating with the Gentiles, unless they circumcise themselves, maybe you are returning to the doctrines of demons. Maybe you should be, and everyone who teaches what you're doing, should be damned. Now, you see, the rhetoric is going up and up and up. And if we read the book of Galatians, we see that Paul doesn't just see one more church split in this, but he sees that the gospel is at stake. So he goes back and forth opening up what is actually going on in this church. And never does he say, this is a trivial matter. You know, chill out about it. You know, we'll make it through united as a church. Now, he's not trying to get the church to be united. He's trying to get the church to be true, and then it'll be united. He's never focusing on, you know, unity as an end in itself, but rather unity as a function of focusing on the truth that, no, circumcision is not your hope. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. And, brothers and sisters, the book of Galatians is a warning to us all through history that we as people will always, because of our pride, look to have something our hope is in other than Jesus Christ.
Okay? We'll always do this. We'll do it before we're Christians. We'll do it after we're Christians. We will do it until the moment when we are glorified in heaven. And the reason is that pride is deep, deep, deep in our character. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to this church filled with proud men and women who want to trust in something other than Jesus and who want, by doing that, to give a little bit of you know, stature to them and to their Jewish friends. All right? Just a little bit, not much, but Paul goes berserk. Now, the way Paul deals with this going back and forth the way he's been dealing with it immediately prior to our text this morning is by opening up to them the precious gift that they've been given, namely, that they've been adopted sons of God, that the Spirit in them is crying out, Abba, Father, that this is a treasure. And so having opened up this treasure to them, he then begins the text with this word. What was the word? However, all right, he's talking about them prior to when they were saved. And he says, however, at that time, when you did not go, know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So he's holding out a precious gift to them, saying, in Christ, you become adopted sons just as Jesus is the very Son of God. You become able to call God Abba Father just as your elderly brother, your elder brother, says Abba Father. All these things are your inheritance. You no longer are treated like a slave, but like a son. Look at the treasure! You know, Look at the treasure! However, remember where you came from. You remember the psalm that says that the Lord lifted us up out of the pit that we were sunk into. And often, the only thing that gets us as believers to see things accurately is to remember the pit that we were dug from. Now, that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to focus on this issue of the pit that we were in before Christ. And why? Well, if you've ever watched somebody running hurdles, or you've watched uh, videos of, uh, of uh, some of the horse uh, competitions where they're jumping a barrier, you know that occasionally there's a barrier that's too high. Uh, and the horse will come up, be running, and then all of a sudden it'll just stop. You know, something in its brain, it stops. Sometimes the rider goes whoop, right up over the top. Sometimes the horse stops and then sort of somersaults into the barrier and into the water on the other side, right? Well, this verse is that barrier for you if you're honest as you look at it. And I want you to look at it very carefully. Look at what it says. It says, speaking of us outside of Christ, it says what? It says, however, at that time, before we came to faith in Christ, at that time, it says, when you did not know God. Now let me ask you, personally, when did you not know God? When did you not know God? This is a very dangerous question. And it's dangerous because of the modern counterpart to the Galatian circumcision heresy. But nowadays it's not circumcision, but it's baptism. And nowadays 
if we, if we were to ask many parts of the church through the centuries when they did not know God, they would say, well, before I was baptized. When did you come to know God? Well, I was baptized. In fact, I had a man in Bloomington tell me, when, before I came here to serve as a pastor, uh, he was describing the, the wonderful home he grew up in. And this man had this to say about his home, and this was the highest compliment he could pay to his home. He said, I am pleased and grateful to God that I was raised in a home where there was never a time when I did not know God. And at the time, that sounded very, very good to me. I mean, wouldn't you like to grow up in a home where you never didn't know God? But note this. Look at the text. The text says, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Okay, so the people that he's writing to had a time in their life when they did not know God. Now, if you're on your feet, you're looking at the text, you'll say to me, well, yes, but that's the Gentiles. Right? Not the Jews. Before the Jews came to Christ, they knew God. Well, are you sure? If you keep going down here, it says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? You observe days and months and seasons and years. You desire to be enslaved to these things all over again. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this not true of the Jews as well as the Gentiles? Who was it that was leading the way back to the slavery? To the slavery to the law, to the slavery of the seasons? Was it just the Gentiles? No, it was the Jews also. The Jews and the Gentiles together came to be known by God and to know God. Now, I'm not opposed to us teaching our children to pray to God as their father. I'm not opposed to expecting them, given their submission to mothers and fathers in the home, to call God their God. And so much of the battle between Baptists and people that... Or, between people that only believe in baptizing adults and people that believe in baptizing adults and the children of believing adults, centers on this very issue. How are we to treat our children? All right? And I say, and the elders say, that we are to raise our children as covenant children, as members of a covenant family to whom promises have been given. But does that mean that my children have grown up always knowing God? Does that mean that there is not a time in their life where they come to know God and to be known by God? Does that mean that there's no need for regeneration in a baptized child because baptism does it itself? Absolutely not. The Scripture does not allow us to focus on externals and to neglect and to deny internals. And if you look at Galatians, and if you look at Scripture, you look at Jesus, you'll see a constant emphasis on knowing God and being known by God. What does the Apostle Paul say? It was made into a hymn. He says what? 
I know what? What I have believed. Is that what it says? Huh? It doesn't say that. What does it say? I know whom. Whom. There's a huge difference between that little word what and that little word whom. And Christians are those who know God. We don't know about God. But we know God. We are intimate with God. We go to God for our needs. We believe in prayer. We believe in listening to and reading His Word. We believe that He exists and that He knows those that belong to Him. We believe that there is a Lamb's Book of Life in Heaven where our names are written because of our faith in His Son. This is what it is to be a Christian. Now, why do I say this is a hurdle that the horse or or I come running up to and then like go crashing into it because it's too high? Well, because you know that if we were to go outside of this church this morning and pick up just the average person over at Cars Farm Park or down on Kirkwood or out at the golf course today, and we were to say to them, at random, just someone, we were to say to them, do you know God? What would be the answer? Absolutely the answer would be, yes, I know God. All right? But then, as soon as they said, yes, I know God, what else would they say? Well, the next thing that they would say is, my God. Have you heard that? My God. As if, you know, we're going back to Athens where there's a God on every street corner. In fact, there's a God for my house. In fact, there's a God for my bedroom. There's a God for every one of my little children. There's a God for every ideological commitment and philosophical uh, idol that you have. There are infinite numbers of gods. All of us have my God, your God. All right? And so you say to somebody, do you believe that you know God? And the person's response is, yes, I know God. All right? This is what they would say. There might be a few skeptics who would answer, uh, instead of saying, yes, I know God, they might do what they're doing to you when you get behind their car and they have the little fish with Darwin written in the middle. They'll say, yeah, my God's Charles Darwin. <laughs> right? You know, thumb in your nose, eye, you know. Okay? Or they might be one of that exotic species, an atheist, who would say, who would answer the question, do you know God? They'd say, what God? There is no God. But most people would be quick to say, yes, I know God. And maybe even beyond saying they know God, some might also say that they love God. In fact, it's a rare person in North America today who would be comfortable acknowledging that he does not know God. You walk up to a woman coming out of Kroger, you ask her, excuse me, ma'am, may I ask you a question, please? Do you know God? She answers, no, not really. I suppose I should, but I don't. I mean, come on, it's incomprehensible. (laughs) Or a man answers, well, to be blunt, no, I don't. Always think about him, always hear about him, but no, nope, can't say I do. Another woman responds, no, I've never been particularly interested in him. 
Here in America, it's hard for us even to imagine such a response. Beyond being impious or irreligious, the real problem with it is that it's unpatriotic and un-American. Almost without a moment's thought, most everyone would answer, yes, I know God, and they'd add under the breath, my God is a God of love and acceptance, a God who is not intrusive or belligerent or condemning, a God who is not angry but loving, who takes us just the way we are and is happy for all of us to come to him in our own individual way. My God has a heart big enough that all peoples belong to him. In fact, not only all peoples, but all peoples' gods belong to him also. Whatever ethnic group, whatever nation, whatever tongue, whatever philosophy, whatever religion you belong to, my God opens his arms up and he accepts you. My God does not judge people and he does not judge people's religion, but he accepts them. He accepts their faith tradition. He knows that they're doing the best that they can. Now, be honest with me. Be honest with me, that is American civic religion. That is our national God. That is what all of us suck from the breast of our culture. This is what we do naturally. It sounds so easy coming out of my lips that none of you have to like readjust yourself. The only thing that's wrong with it is it's coming from my lips here. If we're anywhere else, we'd all be going, hey, 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 you know, that's a religion for me, right? But I bring it in here and all of a sudden you think that I have been, what, sacrilegious, blasphemous. As a matter of fact, a lot of you are having trouble trying to figure out if I'm serious or not. And the answer is, I'm absolutely serious in saying that that is the God of America. This is why when everybody wants to talk about religion and politics, you know, my response is to feel that, you know, I'm in a corner and, and, and the bulls are coming after me. Because it's hopeless. How do you even begin to discuss religion in a nation where that's their God? I mean, the Democrats perceive me, if I ever wrote Republican, vote Republican, as, as, as having that God as my God. And even the president probably thinks that's my God. The president probably, because he hasn't been taught well, thinks that's the true God. A God who acknowledges that, that Islam is a religion of peace. Okay? Now, if you're mad right now, Remember, my job is to preach the Word to you. I'm not supposed to be one more of these people that just gives you contemporary cultural nice thoughts. That's not my job. My job is to be a prophet. Okay? So if you're uncomfortable, you're supposed to be uncomfortable. That's good. You know, this is not a Star Wars movie. Okay? You can pay them money... And they'll make you feel good, right? But you come to church, and whether or not you pay your money, you're going to get God's truth because Scripture has revealed it to us. And there should be a place that is safe from ideological manipulation and double talk. 
Now, I come back and I tell you, that's your God if you're an American. That's the God that you naturally have. That's the God that's so natural that you don't even have to think about Him. All of you could have written everything I just said with your eyes closed on an SAT test. Okay? Now, how unusual is that whole thing that I just went through? Well, it's not unusual at all. It's exactly what the very sophisticated Athenians thought. In ancient Rome and in ancient Greece, that was their national religion. It's as old as the hills. Now, how do we know this? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And you'll see this exact same thing going on. The Apostle Paul had been in the province of Galatia in ancient Rome. He was also in Athens in ancient Rome. In Athens, five centuries prior to what we're going to read, a certain man had been executed and had been condemned in the very spot where the Apostle Paul is standing at this time. In the Areopagus, who? Who was it? Socrates. Socrates had been condemned in the Areopagus. Five centuries earlier, if you were to ask the most educated person at the most reputable university in this country, which I hate to tell us, but it's not IU, all right? If you were to ask them, what is the highest expression of the intellect in all of human history, they would tell you right there in that city, Athens. And so what was their high intellect? What were their philosophical commitments? What was the culture that they just automatically had? Well, it's identical to ours. Look there with me, Acts 17. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. One of the things I hate about preaching is that there's no ability to argue. And let me tell you, when the Apostle Paul went out, he argued with people. They took their best shot and he gave his. And if we care about truth, there should be many more arguments, but we're so intent on being tolerant that truth doesn't matter. It's just whether or not you like me when you leave, right? So here he is, reasoning. And you know what reasoning between Jews and, and, and Greeks is? It's probably pretty intense, right? Okay, in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. All right? And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus where... Socrates was condemned, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing the latest issue in iTunes. Something new. And so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
And therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope. <laughs> now what is groping? Groping is something you do in the dark when you have no idea what you're seeking, right? They grope, perhaps grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. We exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. This is the simple biological reproduction that they would refer to. And so you see here, brothers and sisters, the absolute rejection of religious tolerance and pluralism and inclusivity that Paul is here preaching. It is the God. It is the only true God. It is this God over and over and over again. Exclusivity. He goes on, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art. Now notice the next two words. By the art and what? By the art and what? And thought of man. We have a lot of trouble recognizing ideology and philosophy and sort of civic religion as being an idol. Because, you know, it's not exhibited at the Art Institute, the old bales of Canaan, you know? It's like a concept. Concepts can't be an idol. But the Bible tells us that greed is an idol. And that the man who's greedy is an idolater. Alright? And he says, what? Form by the art and thought of man, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance. Now that word has come up how many times? Twice. He's in Athens and twice he uses what word? Ignorant. Now listen, if you've ever heard a lecture explaining to you how sensitive Paul is in Athens, it's a lie. I mean, okay, he is sensitive. But he's certainly not bending over backwards to make common cause with the Athenians. Imagine going to Oxford or the Sorbonne and talking about their ignorance. I mean, there's nothing that would more perfectly be calculated to insult them than to accuse them of being ignorant. You could accuse them of being evil and they'd say, eh, maybe. You know? You could accuse them of being a materialist and they'd say, well, yeah, I have to admit it. You could accuse them of being passive-aggressive and they'd say, that's our departmental politics. All right? But you accuse them of ignorance, you're going precisely to the place that their entire life is set up to oppose, which is ignorance. Their God is education. Their God is the enlightenment. And that means bringing light to us so that our children, even though we're ignorant and religious, our children won't be. Okay? And so he says what? He says... In the past, God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but he's now declaring to, all, to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness 
through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we'll we'll hear you again about this thing. Okay, so in all their tolerance and inclusivism, in all their religious pluralism, the Athenians were only groping for what? For what they did not know. Is there a time in every man's life, every woman's life, every child's life, when they do not know God? Look at 23, verse 23. Paul proclaims to the Athenians, the only true God is their unknown God. In other words, the one God that really exists was the one God that they didn't know. In fact, they admitted it. To, you know, it was an altar, it was an idol to an unknown God. And this theme of ignorance is prominent in this dialogue. His debate, it's prominent. His lecture, his sermon on the hill in Athens, it is prominent. And he uses the word ignorance in verse 23. He uses it again. The altar to the unknown God, says Paul, is an altar to their ignorance. And they are ignorant of the only true God. The God they do not know is the God who made the world and all things in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He needs nothing. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And this God made from one man every nation of mankind. Now, come on. Could you write something that more flies in the face of everything that the modern educational enterprise stands for? This text is perfectly calculated to cut the jugular of ancient Greek culture. Think of this little phrase, this God made from one man every nation of mankind. That God made us is hard enough, but that he made every nation of mankind from one man, they would say, is absurd. Modern science has established quite well, thank you, that God, a God, some God, may well have made the universe, he may well have made the Big Bang, but even that's arguable and most evolutionists would deny that there was any first cause, any absolute necessity for a prime mover. Nature itself is the creative agent. Even if weak and timid minds must accept the agency of God being the prime mover behind the Big Bang that started it all, surely by now we've gotten past this ignorance dealing with Adam. The Bible story about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve is all well and good for children, for little ones, but adults should have put away such childish things. Again, modern science, you know, evolutionary biology, paleontology, geology, physics, astronomy, and cosmology, modern science has well established the origin of species, including the species of man. And our origin is in ourselves. We evolved from a lower life form. We did not come from one man. We didn't come from Adam. We were not created out of nothing. We evolved. What, though, does God say about such scientific truths? He says not only that He made the world and all things in it, that He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, but also that He made from one man every nation of mankind. Now, it would be one thing to bow to our origins. It would be one thing to acknowledge that it is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. All right, Psalm 100, verse 3, it is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. 
Alright? But that's not where the Apostle Paul stops in this debate with the Athenians. But he goes on, and he doesn't just speak of origins, but he speaks of destiny. In other words, he tells them that in the past, their denial of their origin was an ignorance that God was willing to overlook. But that now, he has appointed a time and a man by whom they will be judged. And that time is approaching. And he will judge the world through that one man. The Apostle Paul proclaims here to the most sophisticated city of intellectuals the world has ever seen that their national religion of tolerance based upon mutual understanding is an ignorance that God will no longer tolerate but now will judge. This one God, he says to the Athenians, the only true God, the God who made us and in whom we live and move and have our being, this God has brought the times of ignorance, the times of tolerance to an end and has now fixed a date and a time for judgment. Okay, so what's the application to us? Well, there are two applications I want to speak to you about. Number one, I want to apply it to those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ. This is the condition of all those who are committed to tolerance and inclusivity and pluralism. They are in ignorance and they are denying the God who made them. It's not another religion. It's not another form of Christianity. It is an out-and-out denial of the God who is there, of the God who made them. And so, you can't go through life working at the factory, sitting in the classroom, Uh, you know, working on the lawn of your neighbors. And you cannot do this without recognizing that those who say that there are many paths to heaven, those who say that the God of Islam is a God of peace, are absolutely contrary to Scripture. Because Scripture labels those gods and calls them what in our text? It says those non-gods. That's what God says about all the idols that we make, either by our hands or by our thoughts. They are non-gods, not gods. Now, what is a not-god? Well, Scripture says a not-god is an idol. Scripture says idols are demons. And so those who worship any god but the true God are worshiping demons. They are slaves, according to our text, to demons. Now, there is no way to get around that and to be a Christian. You may be uh, a pantheist, you may be Baha'i, you may be Islam, although even Islam it doesn't really conform to. You know, you may be a Jew, probably conservative, certainly not orthodox. You know, you may be a Marxist, you may be a Buddhist, you may be a Confucianist, you may be just a decadent materialistic American, you may be a Republican. But you cannot be a Christian and believe that all paths of all inclinations, of all people groups of all time, go to the same place. Because God Himself has revealed that as ignorance that one day soon will be judged. Alright? And so you don't love your neighbor if you allow yourself to live in some like existential la-la land where you're like, your neighbor has a different path and it's cool, you know? Hey, peace, brother, you know? Now, I, I'm sorry, I'm making fun of it because it's absurd. 
What is their peace? You know, the New, York, New Yorker had uh, a cartoon about 15, 20 years ago. It was Woodstock 25 years later. A bunch of people in cocktail dresses and business suits standing around drinking martinis. That's the peace of the 60s, right? And what's the peace of the 90s? It's divorce court. What's the love of the first decade of, you know, the third millennium? What is it? It's the divorce court. Don't ever be intimidated by their claims to having higher values and, and being like, like tolerant. They're not tolerant. They're not tolerant of their wife. Okay? Let alone of another people group. You know, not tolerant of ignorant people. They hope they stay out of Bloomington and they hope they never are able to bring their double wides here. Okay? Don't ever buy this. It is Christians who have all the races together, all the sexes together, who stay married, who have children because they love them. Okay? And who, like, die, like, waiting for God to take them instead of taking their destiny in their own hands like Jacqueline Onassis did. You understand this? It's a lie. And if you go along with it and shut your mouth and don't testify to the living God, you are a liar also because you know the truth and you choose not to give it. You understand that? So that's the application for you as Christians. You need to understand the condition of those people that you live among. It is not another path. It is slavery to those that are not God's it is slavery to demons. And it is to be taken seriously. The God of tolerance in the United States of America today is a demon. And all of our country is bowed before it and worshipping it. And it's a, it's a vapor. It's a mist. The second our economic bliss is gone, we will kill each other as every previous generation of man has ever done. Okay? Now, those of you that don't know God, this is an evangelistic message. How could it be an evangelistic method, message? Well, you cannot come to the true God until your idols have been slain. You need to understand that you don't have a choice which God you're going to serve. You serve demons and you don't know God and you're not known by God. Or you serve the Son, you kiss the Son because God has set a time when you will be judged by your response to the Son of God, Jesus Christ is His name. Do you understand this? This is one place in your life where there's not like, you know, this place where you can stand way over here and then this place that you can stand way over here and then a whole host of incremental steps where you can also stand. Okay? You can't do it. God has revealed His Son, Jesus Christ, to you. His Son went on the cross, poured His blood out. God holds the blood of His Son precious, as any father would do with His Son. And He says, if that blood has been shed and proclaimed to you, as I have proclaimed it to you just now, if you've never heard it before, He expects from you that you will kiss that Son. And kissing that son is for you to do what Paul called the Athenians to do, which is to turn away from their ignorance to the living God and to love Him and to worship Him because He shed His blood for you and He loves you. And it is not love for God to say, well, you know, Christians, that's kind of, you know, that's a nice way to worship God. But I just don't find myself there. My God, no, no, no. 
You have just turned again to the idol, to the demonic influence of tolerance in America. It is an idol made by thought. It is just like the Greek idol. It's just like the Roman idol, idol of the pantheon of gods. And you have just rejected the Son of God. And He has appointed a day and a place where you will be judged. Now, your self-interest then is for you to kiss the Son so that the Father will accept you. It's that simple. And so why wouldn't you kiss him? Well, you know, the idol of America is a very enticing idol that will get you able to write movie scripts and able to get letters to the editor published and able to get your dissertation done in and able to get you to be able to call your union brothers brothers, which is a lie. You know, it's a nice idol. But that idol one day will be judged. And it will be judged by the living God who made you, in whom you have your being. And if it's true in Athens, if it's true in Galatia, if it's true in Romania, it's true here in sophisticated, you know, postmodern, wealthy America. And you are being given the privilege of repenting. And it's a privilege. Okay? It's a privilege. So, what's keeping you from kissing the sun? Is it the sun is not beautiful? Is it he's nasty? You know, I always think of this, and I'll end with this. I always think of how much people hate hearing truth today. And then all of a sudden, bang! They're in divorce court before a judge. Bam! They hear truth for the first time in their life. Truth! The judge speaks and everybody rejoices that finally this poor oppressed victim has come before a just judge. Right? We don't want a judge that like kowtows to the rich people in our courts, do we? No. Why do you want the living God to be such a judge? Why do you want Him to act as if He hasn't revealed Himself? As if His Son is not honorable? Why do you want Him to give in to the rich Americans who love tolerance? If you were to go to a doctor and you had a pressure in your abdomen and you went to the doctor and he felt and there's this big protuberance coming out of your abdomen and he said, well, does it hurt? You say, yes, it hurts. Now, how long have you had this? Well, about six months, you know. Well, you know... You know, we could go in and look at it. I'm not sure it would do any good. I do have some good painkillers. You know? There's this new homeopathy. You know? And, and like, you know, you could just think it doesn't exist. In fact, there's a whole religion for you people. It's called, uh, what's it called? Christian science. You know? I used to clean their reading room in Rockport, Massachusetts. So depressing. All right? If you had a doctor like that, what would you do to the doctor? He's gone. You want a judge who's true. You want a doctor who's true. Do you want a God who's false? Let's pray. Father, we...